0: Well, good morning, church. It is great to be here before you all this morning with the opportunity to be able to preach God's word to you. Uh, I want to thank everyone here for your support, and your constant prayers for me during this whole candidating process. Uh, I just, I've been reflecting upon this whole process and, and it's just been a joy to know how far God has led myself has led this church um, and, and God is sovereign through all this and God is good. And as I thought about you all as my church that I grew up in, the church where I've been saved, the church where I have grown so much and really call this place my family, I, I wanna reflect upon the words of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse three, where it says that I'm grateful for you for your work of faith your labor of love and your steadfastness of hope in our lord jesus christ and i recognized that as i reflect upon those words i will not be standing here today this morning without you so thank you this morning as been mentioned we'll be looking on the topic of marriage and. I feel like I've been knee deep into this topic for the past two months, because in in transit, the Young Adult Fellowship, I have been in a series um, talking about marriage. Um, but th- this morning, our sermon series, first through first, Thessalon- uh, first Corinthians, we will be coming upon this passage that talks about marriage, but in, in a little bit different light. We're gonna be talking about two aspects of marriage that we don't normally talk about. Too much. We're going to be looking on topics such as sex, singleness, and divorce. It's not exactly an ideal passage for a candidating sermon, but it is indeed still God's Word. And so I invite you all, if you guys have your Bibles, go and turn with me to 1st Corinthians. and We will be in chapter 7. 1st Corinthians chapter 7, we will be looking at at this passage verses 1 through 16. The title of my sermon this morning is Principles of Purity and Peace. Principles of Purity and Peace. And and what we're going to come across is we're going to come across these two principles dealing specifically with sexual desire and divorce. And these two topics, these two topics on sex and divorce, they they're not t- again they're not topics we normally talk about but yet these are topics that are important to address and they're important to address in our in our current age today because our culture deals with these topics in all the wrong ways right we think about how sex education has fallen into the hands of the secular world and and I remember reading this article online about this new online bot that that was created by Planned Parenthood and and teens will go to that bot to ask questions and that's where they get their answers about sex and relationships. On the other hand, our culture today celebrates divorce. They celebrate divorce as a way of escape from a bad marriage or an un- unhappy life. Both of these issues, sex and divorce, they have undermined the very institution of marriage itself and redefined it completely and as we think about our culture today and we're looking upon this text of first Corinthians we need to remind ourselves that the Corinthian church faced these same issues during their time the city of Corinth was well known for their uh, permissive um, morality that the city that the Corinthian church was a part of it's just, they, they talk about the city of Corinth in the same way we talk about the same way we talk about Vegas it's a city full of sin and so the church here was battling and as they battled they, they most likely had a bunch of questions for the apostle Paul which is why Paul here addresses these questions in our passage this morning and so we're going to take a look at this passage because it's a long passage. I'm not going to read through the whole thing right now. Instead, we're going to, I'll be reading in it as we're going through the sermon. But just to kind of give you guys an outline of what this sermon will be like, there are again two. There's going to be two principles we're going to be looking at. Um, principles of period and peace. And so there's two points to this. And underneath each point, I'm going to give you guys the underlying principle for that point. And and. And then we're going to take a look and see how Paul applies that principle to different groups of people within the church. And then the last part, each point will consist of a goal. And so if you're tracking with me, it's going to be a point, and underneath the point, it will be a sub-point of principle, application, and goal. And that's what it's going to be like. And again, there's two points that we'll be covering. And so the first point we're going to be looking at here is to pursue purity. In marriage, pursue purity in marriage. And this we will be finding in verse 1 through 9. The principle underneath this point is this Sex is a gift from God that is meant to be enjoyed within the boundaries of marriage. I'll repeat that Sex is a gift from God that is meant to be enjoyed within the boundaries of marriage. Look with me at verse 1. Paul here writes, he says, now concerning the manners about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now I just read from the ESV, the, the NASB has a more literal translation, it says, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, and that word touch is a literal translation from the Greek and it's translated as sexual immorality here in the ESV and I believe that's correct, because. In the Greek, for a man to touch a woman, it was a euphemism to talk about sexual relations, specifically about sexual relations that are motivated by self-gratification, by self-pleasure. And so here we see that the Corinthian church most likely asked the question to Paul. They they listed out this, out this, this principle that it's not good to have sexual relations or not good for a man to touch a woman and what's most likely happening here is that they most li- the church most likely started to separate themselves from the culture around them. And they began to condemn sex a little bit too far. They, they held a, a more like a Roman Catholic view of sex, where it is, sex is wrong if it's, always, if it's pursued for self-pleasure, if it's pursued for self-gratification, completely wrong. Even within marriage, if you were to have sex for that purpose, you're doing it wrong. Instead, what they thought about sex most likely was, again, a little bit more like Roman Catholics. They probably thought that sex was—the only purpose for it was for procreation, was to have children. And so if you have sex in any other way, any other reason, you are in sin. And that's, that was their mistake. Paul here sets out to correct that mistake and what he does here is he he wants to make sure that you know his instructions in the chapter before to flee sexual immorality it was not meant to demoralize sex it was not meant to devalue sex instead his point of fleeing sexual immorality was to make sure that no one corrupted the purity of sex God has designed sex to be a gift A gift as meant to be enjoyed within the confines of a marriage between a man and a woman. To use sex in any other way is it's like drinking coffee with creamer you're ruining the purity of it. So then how does Paul apply this principle? We see here Paul applies it to two different groups of people. First, he applies it to married couples. And he encourages the married couples to have sex regularly. Look with me in verse two, it says, but because of the temptation to sexual morality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now, Paul here, he, he commends sex for the married couples. And he commends it because of sexual immoralities. You see, Paul is not ignorant about our human body. He's not ignorant about our desires that run underneath the passions that flow through there. Yes, Paul was single, but that doesn't mean he didn't understand what these things do to us. Paul understands that if there's no outlet for sexual expression, then these desires can tempt us down many evil paths. And so Paul here says, because you have these sexual desires, point these desires to your wife, to your husband. That is what they were meant for. Paul expands on this in verse three and four. He says, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body but the wife does. We see here that the husband and wife have mutual responsibility and mutual belonging to one another. Note in verse three that says, it says that the husband should give to his wife, her conjugal wife. We we see here that husbands and wives are to give, not to take. It's to give themselves to each other and what Paul is saying here is revolutionary during this time in culture. We, we got to remember during this time, it was expected that the husband was usually viewed as the man of the house, and he was honored as a proprietary owner of everything's in household, including his wife. And so when we see here in verse 4 that, Paul says the husband has authority over the wife, over her body. That's actually nothing spectacular. That's nothing new to this culture. What he says next in verse four is what truly counters the culture. Where he says that the wife also has mutual authority over the husband in his body. That flies in the face of that culture. That flies in the face of our culture today. Right. But the next time someone today uh, tells you thinks that the Bible just dis- dis- diminishes the value of a woman, of a wife, you show them this verse. You show them that no, the Bible actually exalts the wife. This verse is meant to elevate the woman, to give the wife value and ownership of the marriage. The wife was not enslaved to the husband. And the husband. The husband is the husband here is he's not free to have as many sexual encounters as he, as he wants. The verse says here husbands your bodies too belong to your wife as much as her body belongs to you. Paul makes his instructions even clearer in verse 5. He says, "Do not deprive one another." And NASB says, "Stop depriving one another. Stop avoiding sex as if it's taboo, as if it's something no couple should do. No, as Christians, guys, as church, we are to be real about sex. That when two people are married, sex is expected. There is an exception here. In verse five, he says, except do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourself to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. We see here that the priority is always about God, right? If you were to have a mutual agreement, again, this agreement here is mutual a mutual agreement between the husband and wife not to have sex for a limited time is so that you can devote yourself to God. But Paul here, Paul here recognizes that if you do it for too long, again, our passions, our desires will be trapped and it may lead us to a whole bunch of temptation and Satan knows that satan knows that and he will tempt you he will fill that void with a boatload of temptation and he will use god-given natural desires to bring corruption to your marriage and ultimately to the church so therefore married couples stop depriving one another the biblical prescription for married couples who struggle with controlling their desires their lusts is to have more sex with one another this is why in verse 6 Paul says that this is a concession and not a command it's a concession because he recognizes the reality of our bodies, the reality of our emotions and our desires. Uh, It's a concession, a concession recognizing this deception to not have sex for a limited time. It's not a commandment that you must do, but it's a concession to recognize that, yeah, you can do that, but understand your own bodies, understand your own weakness, understand your own limits of self-control. In verse 7, Paul moves on to a different group. He he shifts his attention from married couples to singles. So now he's applying this principle of purity to singles. And he says here, I wish that all were as myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one one of one kind and one of another. Verse 8, To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. First, I want us to note who Paul here is addressing. He says here, to the unmarried and the widows. Uh, This here, he's talking about singles. Those who have never been married and those who have been married, but perhaps their spouse has passed away. And what we realize here is that singleness is experienced by everyone. This is this is not something we just brush off when we get married. We were all born single, and the reality is, is that many of us will become single again. Paul here commends singleness. He, he tells them that it's good to remain single. And in fact, he wants everyone to be like him. Now, some of us might say that today out spite for those who are married, but Paul here, he's not doing that. He he wishes that all will pursue singleness, and he doesn't do that because he's jealous or unhappy about his own relationship status. And we'll see later in in chapter 7 that Paul gives his reason why he promotes singleness, and we will find out later on that singles, they can pursue God without any of the anxiety and worry that comes with marriage and family. Now, for myself, I just wanna say this, I recognize I say all the time, I love singleness. I say that all the time and don't worry, my wife knows that I say that all the time. And I tell her that I love marriage too. And I'm extremely grateful to be married to her. The reason why I say I love singleness is because in my years of being single, I recognize here what Paul here is saying, I, and I had to learn. I, I learned to appreciate the value of singleness as Paul does here, that there's that this singleness, this gift is truly from God. But this, pa- this message is not about singleness. Well, I want us to pay attention a little bit more about why Paul here is talking about singleness. The main point, the main point of how Paul applies this principle of purity for singles is this. He says that the biblical prescription for singles struggling with self-control is to get married. It's to get married. Note here what Paul is not saying. He is not saying that you should get married so that you can have sex. So singles, note that. That is not what Paul is saying. He's saying that you should get married so that you will not fall into sexual temptation. There's a difference here. Marriage is more than sex. And we we see that clearly laid out in Ephesians chapter 5. Marriage is more than sex. You have to pursue marriage for the right reasons, for godly reasons what Paul here is saying is that even when your relationship is right with God, even when you're content in your singleness, if you still struggle with lust, go, it is good for you to find a spouse. That's what Paul here is saying. That's better to marry than to burn with these passions of lust and sexual desire. This leads to the goal of this biblical principle of purity. And and Paul here, he's, he's not, again, not suggesting that singles will get married just to fulfill their sexual desires, nor is he saying that couples should have regular intercourse for self gratification. The point here was always about God. And so the goal of pursuing purity is this, is so that no sexual immorality may enter and corrupt the body of Christ. The goal of pursuing purity is so that no sexual immorality may enter and corrupt the body of Christ. Your purity is ultimately about glorifying God. And, and, and you you're, you're using your gifts, whether you're married or single for the glory of God, not for your own reason. And we have to recognize that sex is a gift from God for our enjoyment and for His glory. Church, we have to recognize this truth about sex. That that there is indeed a glory to sex the way God designed it. And we have to recognize what this means in our day and culture today. Our culture around us has devalued sex. There's no significance of sex to our culture today. They, they, They say that people can throw their bodies around any way they want as long as it makes you happy. Our culture tells us that we have the freedom to use sex for our pleasure. God here has a higher standard. God here says that sex has moral value and glory to it. that that sex within marriage expresses this magnificent beauty to how God has designed our bodies as male and female. Sex is an expression of love between a husband and a wife. It is a way for two individuals to become one flesh. It is a physical representation of the covenantal faithfulness that comes in marriage. Sex is wonderful and beautiful when we obey God on how to use this gift. This is what we must constantly promote and teach within our church today, within our own families. We think about our youth, our children, our, our young adults who are single. We think about them, we have to remind them that this is what sex is about I know that at church we tend to think that we're just condemning sex we say you shouldn't have sex before marriage you you have to avoid sexual morality don't go online self-control yourself watch out for pornography and those are all things that are right but we must also present to them the beauty the glory of sex the way God designed it that the union between a husband and a wife, as Ephesians and as Ephesians 5 tells us, sex represents a marriage. And a marriage represents Christ and the gospel and his love for his church. Ultimately, this is what's all about. And it's a beautiful picture. So that's the first point that we see here in our passage this morning. To pursue purity in marriage the second point of our sermon this morning is to pursue peace in marriage pursue peace in marriage and again here's the underlying principle that paul is presenting the underlying principle is this that believers should seek marital reconciliation and not divorce Believers should seek marital reconciliation and not divorce. And again, Paul here addresses this principle and points it at two different groups of people. And the first group that he addresses are the married couples who are believers. We're talking about Christian marriages. Look with me at verse 10 and 11. Paul here writes, to the Mary I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Paul here makes it clear that this here comes directly from our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a command that comes from Him. We find this taught in the Gospels in Mark chapter 10 verse 9, Jesus says what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. This is indeed what God has commanded since the beginning, right? that a man and woman will come together in holy matrimony and it says in Genesis that the two should become one flesh. This is PB and J coming together to make one sandwich. God has joined them together and they shall remain married for life. Then it says here, now if a wife does separate from the husband, she shall remain unmarried And if she wants to be married, then she should be reconciled with her husband. Now, Paul here most likely had some specific people in mind as he was talking about this. And and we have to remember again, let's think about the culture back then. And I want to argue that the culture back then is not that much different from the culture that we're in today. Back then, divorce was a common endeavor people will often get divorced just so they can marry someone else they want to marry divorce back then was common and marriages in general did not last that long and so divorce was done back then in the same way our culture celebrates no-fault divorce there there didn't have to be much of a reason to get a divorce so Paul here He was most likely addressing Christian couples who were struggling in their marriage and wanted to get a divorce perhaps for the wrong reasons and the wrong motivations now I believe that he's addressing these people that they do have the wrong reasons because we have to remember in scripture there is indeed two exceptions to divorce that allows divorce to be permissible right Jesus said one that if there is sexual morality that gives you permission to seek a divorce, not saying you should, but there is, there is permission opening to. And the second one we will see later in our passage. And so Paul here, he was most likely addressing people who had the wrong reasons, because he's telling them stay together, that you should not be breaking this apart what we see here is that believing couples, Christian marriages where the husband and wife are both Christians should not pursue divorce. Instead, reconciliation should be our motivating desire, reconciliation in our marriage. The next group that Paul here addresses is for mixed marriages mixed marriages and and what this is is a marriage union between a believer and an unbeliever now just to kind of talk a little bit more about this a a marriage union between believer and unbeliever how does this happen because we we know from second corinthians chapter 6 verse 14 that we're commanded not to be uh, not to not to be combined with an unbeliever not to be unyoked in that way to be unbalanced what most likely happened here with, mo- with mixed marriages probably happened in one of two ways could have been two couples who were not believers who got married and one of them got saved or it could have been two professing believers who got married but over time one of them fell away from the faith then again there could also be those who sinfully married an unbeliever whatever the case is we are dealing here with mixed marriages look with me at verse 12 it says to the rest i say and paul here says i not the lord so this is not coming directly from the mouth of jesus yet it is still the word of god to the rest i say i not the lord that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him he should not divorce her verse 13 if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her she should not divorce him we see here that this verse reiterates the governing principle that we're talking about here that believers should seek to reconcile their marriages and so if an unbelieving spouse consents meaning they are willing to live in faithfulness the marriage then the believer should remain as he or she is to understand this a little bit more let's jump to verse 15 join me to verse 15 Paul here writes he says but if the unbelieving partner separates let it be so in such cases the brother or sister is not enslaved God has called you to peace now here we see the one one of two biblical exceptions to where divorce becomes permissible and the case here the case here is when an unbelieving spouse no longer consents to live with the believer and seeks a divorce and Paul's recommendation here is to let the unbeliever go it's to say that you are no longer bound to this unbeliever, that this unbeliever can pack their stuff into the box to the left and leave. Now, there's a lot I could say to this, about this exception, and I just don't really have the time. We can venture into different scenarios, like, you know, what, what constitutes separation. What, what about those who are abused and neglected but they still live in the same home what, what about uh, children who are abused and, and, and maybe one the husband or the wife poses a threat to them what, what is it that we should do in these situations what is Paul here recommending for us and while I don't have time to address all these different scenarios I do want to give one piece of general advice from this passage deception here states that if unbelieving partner separates, and the key word here is unbelieving. Unbelieving. What constitutes an unbeliever? How does a Christian believer understand determines if their spouse is an unbeliever? What does that mean? If someone who, if you were married to a professing Christian, that person just left, left you and your children behind, do they suddenly become an unbeliever? What does this mean? And I want to portray the scenarios. So I going not go with the scenario of a believing wife who perhaps her husband is an unbeliever. And, 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 and what we see here, if we take the scenario and now we apply it to the church, We see here why church membership and church discipline becomes so important. Because it is the church here that must then come alongside and walk with the believing wife. Walk with her because she's been separated, she's been hurt, she's been broken. To walk with her, let's think about this for a moment. Think about the process of how church membership works. If the husband and wife were both members of the church, And then the husband decides to leave. The church then has to step in with church discipline, right? Because the church has that responsibility because they're members and and there's that covenant of responsibility between the members and the church and the church to the members. And so the church reaches out, reaches out to, to both the husband and the wife to find out what's going on. And again, the goal here is reconciliation. That's always the goal. What happens if the husband doesn't want to deal with church discipline? Well, at the end of the church discipline process, as laid out in Matthew chapter 18, it tells us to treat the husband as an unbeliever. Do you then see how church membership and church discipline helps the hurting wife in this situation, helps determine whether or not? The person who left her is unbeliever and again this church discipline process is not quick doesn't happen overnight this is a process of engaging of reaching out of talking of trying to bring the person back into the church into the faith to do the right thing to reconcile and yet if they don't want to Matthew 18 tells us to treat that person as an unbeliever and this This helps the hurting spouse who was left behind. Church membership and church discipline, we have to recognize them that they are not policies built to keep you in check. Church membership and church discipline are policies that are meant to offer grace to those who are suffering. The goal here is reconciliation. The church is here to help those who are struggling the church willing to fight for both sides to bring people back together to pursue peace but we also recognize that the church also is there to help those who may be indeed separated hurt to help those who may be abused to help those who may be in danger to protect them that's what the church is there for is to to walk with them and to help them discern how then to live their life for God, but to also help them be safe. Church, if any of you wonder how this body here, FCBC WANA can help you in your marriage, I want to encourage you that the church can help you. On the other hand, church, FCBC Walnut, I want to exhort you to remember those who may be in very difficult marriages right now. And to remember the principle here, to seek reconciliation and not divorce. And we have to recognize that reconciliation is not easy. It is indeed a hard path and narrow road. The families, these families, these broken families, they need us, to come alongside them, to lift them up, to push them towards peace that can only be found in Christ. Let us now look at the goal of pursuing peace. The goal of pursuing peace, let's turn back to verse 14. Verse 14 says this, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Paul here is saying that we should pursue peace in our marriages, even when our spouses are unbelievers, so that they will be blessed and impacted by the gospel and what we see here is how God works through all this works through the lives of his people to make a positive impact in this fallen world that the word to make holy or to sanctify it literally means a set of parts and this does not mean that the believer who stays married to a The believer who stays married to an unbeliever will guarantee this unbeliever's salvation. It's not saying that. Instead, what it's saying is that the believer's commitment to the marriage sets this unbeliever apart from the world because the unbeliever, in a way, belongs to this believer. They are indeed still one flesh. And what we see here is the power of the gospel. That... That even though your spouse, your unbelieving spouse does not share the same value with you, you can have confidence in the Holy Spirit that dwells in you, in the light of the gospel of who you are as children of light, that when you are with your unbelieving spouse, you become an influence and a positive difference in their life. This is true for all of us, whether we're married or not. Wherever you are, you are a light in this world. Even when your environment seems hopeless, the light of Christ that exists in you shines brighter still. And so what we see here, the goal of pursuing peace, the goal of pursuing peace in your marriages is to bless those around us. It's to bless those around us. The believer does not pursue reconciliation because he or she wants to avoid shame. The believer pursues reconciliation because he or she has faith in God, and it's through that faithful obedience God works all things for good. It is to be a positive influence, a moral barometer, and a testimony of Jesus Christ. Moreover, staying faithful to your marriage also blesses your children. And again, this does not make a promise to your children, that does not make a promise from God that your children will be saved if you're sticking with your unbelieving spouse. It's recognizing, what Paul here is saying is that it's recognizing God's good design for marriage and the family. That a strong marriage becomes a foundation for a family. And when a marriage is portrayed as faithful and healthy, the children are blessed by it. This, this is a amazing portrayal of the gospel and how it impacts the world and impacts the people closest to us. Note here that it's not saying that you should be faithful to your spouse for the sake of your children. That's not what Paul here is saying. It's saying that when you commit to your marriage, your children will be blessed. We shouldn't turn this upside down. Your marriage takes priority over your children because it is through your marriage that your children is made holy. And so all this is to say is that when you pursue peace in your marriage, you bring God into the picture. You you bring God and the God of hope into broken homes, into struggling marriages, into separated families. God is peace and he has called you to peace as we see at the end of verse 15. This means you seek reconciliation for the sake of the gospel. And this means for the husbands to continue to faithfully love your unbelieving wife and lead her and lead her. For the hope of showing her christ and for the believing wives to submit to your unbelieving husband and to respect him in hope of humbling them before god and again we do this with the help and assistance of the church body and keep in mind that you may do all this and yet they your unbelieving spouse may still choose to leave you that's the reality of this And Paul here tells you that if that happens, let it be, let it be. For God has called you to peace. In other words, another way to see this peace that God has called us to is to recognize that when your unbelieving spouse leaves you, it's not because of you, because you tried everything to reconcile. The unbelieving spouse is leaving you because of your faith, because of the gospel because of their own personal relationship with God. And so we see here in verse 16, Paul here writes, for how do you know wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know husband, whether you will save your wife? We can read this verse and recognize that this verse tells us that this does this, this not a promise that our unbelieving spouse will become a believer. But I want to encourage you to see this final verse, verse 16, as a verse of hope. That if you do faithfully pursue reconciliation in your marriage, no matter how hard that may be, no matter how impossible it may seem, if you pursue peace, who knows whether or not God will use your faithfulness to save your spouse. That's the hope upon which our faith rests upon, of hope in God. And so as we see in our passage today, we see here two marriage principles that should help you live your life according to God's will and for the sake of God's glory. And as we come to the conclusion of our sermon this morning, I want to point us towards Christ. Christ, our great shepherd. Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. The big idea for the message tonight is this or this morning is this that Jesus Christ purifies and reconciles your marriage and singleness by reorienting your heart to pursue and glorify God. I repeat that Jesus Christ purifies and reconciles your marriage and singleness by reorienting your heart to pursue and glorify God. Jesus Christ is the key. And for these two principles of purity and peace, they they cannot be done without Christ. At this point, I want us to take a deeper look into our souls here, to, to recognize where we're at with this. I recognize that during this time of pandemic, Marriage and singleness has probably been difficult for many of you. Being at home, it it tends to bring out, brings to the surface many of your weaknesses, many of your insecurities, many of your shame. For the married couples who perhaps lost that romantic spark in their relationship, you now come face to face with each other and you're away from your normally busy lives. And it's been a long time since you had a deep conversation. It's not saying that you guys don't like each other, but it's just its just not the same as it, what it used to be. We have to recognize that this passage here is not about having sex regularly. It's about having a physical and emotional intimacy with your lifelong partner. And perhaps because you're at home, and you realize that there's this coldness. You don't know how to address it. You don't know how to express it because you feel ashamed. You're afraid to show your weakness. Now I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to realize that physical intimacy with your spouse is indeed a good thing that honors God. And I want to encourage you not to be like Adam and Eve who after eating the forbidden fruit saw each other naked and immediately were ashamed. Realize that Christ has covered your shame with his blood. And Christ has given you a blanket of security to express your desires and your hopes to your spouse. Recognize that Christ has freed you to pursue intimacy and purity in your marriage. For the singles, this pandemic cuts you off from your relationships, whether be your friends or whether it's from your dating life and maybe you're at home and bouts of singleness has hit you and you come face to face with yourself your own secure insecurities wondering if you'll ever find true love whether you ever find someone to love you maybe thinking to yourself that something is wrong with you and that pain hurts because you come face to face with a fear that you may never get married. I wanna encourage you to realize that your singleness is not a mistake, but that it is a gift from God. That God has equipped you as singles and saved you for good works. But most of all, to remember that God knows you better than you do that all the shame you hold in your heart, God sees that, and yet He see, He deems you worthy of His Son. And he sends His Son to the cross to die for your sins. God loves you that much, clean to Him. Finally, for those who may be in broken marriages, difficult ones, ones where you probably have a lot of regrets perhaps with an unbelieving spouse, or maybe there's just a lot of arguments to the point where this marriage just doesn't feel Christ-like anymore. I can't imagine how hard this pandemic has been for you to be at home with someone who may seem like a stranger to you. and You're not sure what to do. You're not sure who to turn to and you're working hard just to keep your family together and you're tired and yet you feel too ashamed to share your heart's struggles with anyone. I wanna encourage you to know that Jesus knows your pain and that he desires to bring you peace. For Jesus says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus says learn from me. Know his gentleness and lowliness and you will find rest. Learn Jesus Christ who himself was betrayed by one of his closest friends, deserted by his disciples, nailed to the cross by his own people and sacrificed by his own father so that you may have peace and rest in your own hearts. Jesus understands your pain and your brokenness. but more than that, when Jesus saved you, he has adopted you into a family, a church family, a family that's not broken, a family that is united. Yes, it is a family that is full of sinners, but the head of the family is Christ, and he unites us all together through his blood. This church family here, yes, we're not perfect, but it's held together by an undefiled, pure, and loving God. And it is in here, in the church, in the body of Christ, you can find true security and rest for your souls. And so church all of us whether we're married or single wherever you're at in your stage of life cling to Christ who is your hope and who is your peace let's pray father I thank you for your word and your word lord here is so practical and yet so good to know lord that your word gives us hope and your word points us to Christ. It points us to the cross where where mercy and grace is found mixed in with brokenness and shame. Lord, thank you for being able to cover us with your blood and for making us new, for delivering us for the sake of your glory. So Lord, I pray for us here as we continue to walk through our different stages of life, now we will do it with our hearts clinging to you, knowing that, Lord, you are our hope and you are our peace. You are the one that purifies us and sanctifies us. Lord, may our faith grow ever so deeper and stronger in you. Thank you, God, for your everlasting love to us. I pray all this in your holy and precious name. Amen.